Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. I'm excited to have Jimmy Dore back on the show today to discuss the upcoming 2024 election, or maybe not, and discuss, you know, what's going to be happening and all the conversations around the the candidates. And, and you know, there's, this is one of the most interesting, at least hyped, upcoming elections that I've been around for, for you know, in, in, in I mean, really, since I've been doing this. I've never seen this much hype around whether or not it will happen, the different candidates, the interesting differences in the political discussions, and just kind of the changing political landscape that I think we're all becoming aware of because of things like COVID-19 or the Israel-Gaza conversation and how much that's changed things. And as you all know, I'm, I'm very skeptical of voting in general, the, 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 the dynamics in any number of ways around the political structure and so I wanted to invite Jimmy on to have a conversation about this because I know that he has a lot of perspectives that will give us some insight into things that I may not be paying as much attention to and really just to kind of flesh out some of these topics. So, Jimmy, always a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. You too, man. Good, good to see you. So I want to start with the candidates themselves. And as I said before, you know, I'm very skeptical about, you know, even just the basic concept of whether your, our vote translates and we can talk about that to the actual outcome. But, you know, I think it's important nonetheless to understand who these people are and what they're saying they're fighting for, you know, and then whether or not that's even what they mean. And so I, you know, and, and by the way, I'll, I'll include our, our past interviews because you and I have had some really interesting conversations, usually around the political landscape going back to 2020 up to the recent one we had, which was, I didn't realize was actually on October 10th. So it was right after October oh. 7th. We kind of talked about that in the context of different things, which was really interesting. So I'd like to start, well, I'll come back to some of your tweets. I, I want to start with just the candidates themselves. And and so it's interesting as I'm going through the actual candidates, you know, I, for instance, I wasn't even aware of the different recent changes of people that have dropped out and so on. So as it looks to me, there seems to be about six primary candidates at this point. Uh, it's so it basically it's Biden and Dean Phillips, who I'm barely even aware of. I didn't even know who he was until I looked into it. And then it looks like Trump, Nikki Haley. And then and these are just predominant. There's a few other outliers. But then independence, it looks like RFK Jr. and Cornell West. And so I kind of wanted to start with just let's just start with Trump since he's such a prominent character in all of this. Oh, you, you already have the thought on that. Go ahead if you want to say something. No, I just think it's funny that you mentioned Cornell West. He's not really running for president. Exactly. Well, there's, these are things we, should, but technically he's still running, even though it seems he's even being accused right now. Am I, am I incorrect in that? I thought he was still technically running. I think he te technically, I guess you could consider. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Cause he's being accused of not really running in a campaign to a tech, you know, to really try to win. That was one of the points I was going to bring up. Well, I figure, well, I don't know who else is accusing him of not really running, but when he came on my show, it was clear to me he wasn't running for president because he didn't come on. He's not asking for anyone's vote in mm -hmm. uh, that he, he he didn't try to win me over. He didn't try to he wasn't asking for the people watching the video. My my show that day he wasn't asking for their vote. And if you're not asking for our vote, then you're not really running for president. It was it was abundantly clear. Uh, that he was not interested in trying to uh, garner a broad coalition. He was. Mm -hmm. It was. It was clear he wasn't uh, trying to meet people where they were at. Uh, it was clear that he was simping for Joe Biden and the Democrats. That's what he did. Mm -hmm. It was a, you know, the, the title of the video was Joe uh, Cornell West as a forty-five minute campaign commercial for Joe Biden because that's what it was and his. His refusal to see what was what's plain to see from everybody else, and the problem with Cornell West now is that is through this pre, through his pretend presidential run, 
is that we his all his per- cracks in his personality are becoming a, uh, perfectly clear. They're becoming mm-hmm. highlighted. And uh, his biggest flaw is that his ego is bigger than his IQ. Wow, that's that's a scathing criticism, and I think you're. I, the more I look into it, I, I, I agree. But w- so let's just start with him then, since since because we can go over all of them in general. That so, what do you think his intentions are? And this is what this is a common political tactic. Like, do you think it's as simple as him running just to to draw people back over to Biden who might want might have wanted something different? Is that how you see that, or you tell me what you think in regard to what he was or is trying to accomplish with his run? You know, I I can't get inside. I I can only guess. Mm-hmm. I, other people, the, the my my friends over at uh, Russ and uh, Keaton over at Do Dissonance Podcast, they say he just likes talking to podcasters, and that's why. <laughs> that's funny. Um, uh, other people point out that he has a uh, five hundred thousand dollar IRS tax bill. Boy, I I can't imagine that. But uh, and so that, and that he was doing this to so he could write a book and pay off that debt. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not an accusation. Uh, I mean, so anyway, so there's, who knows, uh, but what he's doing is effectively uh, he was, he was simping for Joe Biden and the Democrats, which was, which was what my message was to him. Cause I was a Cornell West supporter until he came on my show mm-hmm. and he was bent on making an enemy of me. And he did. Uh, so, or a critic, I'm now a critic of his, put it that way. I'm not an enemy of his. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and yeah, so I don't I, I tried to tried to impress upon him that as one as his supporter uh, that I'm going to be uh, I would like him to stop repeating Democratic Party campaign talking points, which is that uh, Donald Trump is a fascist and Joe Biden isn't mm-hmm. and that uh, the prosecution of the Democrats political enemies are just that p- political uh uh, prosecutions and he wouldn't admit right. to that even though i pointed out when i pointed out to him that the same rico statute by the way the rico statutes invented in the 70s to go after the mafia which is why everybody was okay with them because we're only going to use them to go after the mafia always how and, it started <laughs> and so boy yeah it's and so now they're using it to go after the people who are opposing the expansion of the police state in atlanta called stop cop city which i know cornell west supports them and I pointed out, you know, it's the same RICO statute and the same grand jury that they used to indict Stop Cop City protesters as they used to indict Donald Trump. And I looked at him and I said, now you see the game that's being played, right? right. And the game is that whoever opposes the establishment in a formidable way, they will criminalize you. Right. And he looked at me and he called me a Trumper. Wow. He pretended that he didn't see the connection. And, you know, when a when a Harvard professor tries to uh, act dumber than a, a C student YouTuber, uh, there's something amiss. There's something nefarious going on. He's not really running for president. Yeah. And so when I have to explain to him uh, what's not only happening in America, but it's happening globally. It's hope- happening in Pakistan with Imran Khan. They're criminal heat because he stood up against the war machine in Pakistan, the most popular Pakistani uh, politician in 40 years. Uh, Same thing happening in Brazil. You don't have to like Bolsonaro, just like you don't have to like Trump. But uh, what they did was they put Lula in prison in in Brazil. 
because he was too far left for the establishment. And then uh, they thought the center right guy was going to win in Brazil. And son of a bitch, the far right guy, which is the Trump of Brazil, Bolsonaro won. And so they had to figure out how do we remedy this? And so they had to let Lula back out of prison because he's the only one who could beat Bolsonaro. And he did. And then they immediately criminalized Bolsonaro and bar him from running for president. It's the same thing they're doing in the United States. Uh, and it plays with the with the corporate bought media, uh, what they're doing to Donald Trump, because the corporate bought media is owned by the donor class and the donor class in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party hates Donald Trump. And, you know, and the question is, why? Why do they hate Donald Trump? I mean, they love Donald Trump my whole life. He was on the cover of every magazine. He was invited on every late night talk show. He was invited on Saturday Night Live. They gave him his own television show on NBC for 10 years. They gave him Emmy nominations. Uh, They all they all golf together. They all go to each other's third and fourth weddings. Their kids are all best friends. So why do they hate him? Well, they, I mean, the Clintons are the ones who encouraged him to run for president. Right. So, and they, they went to his wedding. And so, uh, and, and their kids are best friends. So why do they hate Donald Trump all of a sudden? Well, all of a sudden, Donald Trump starts uh, recklessly telling the truth about Americans' <laughs> foreign policy. And what did he do? Well, he's, they asked him, why are you leaving troops in Syria? And he said, for the oil, it's our oil and we're taking it. He just said the other day, uh, we should have t- taken the oil from Venezuela. He said the, uh, the country was co- close to collapse. And if I was the president, we would have got that oil. He just says it right out in the open. And so there's plenty of good reasons for the Democrats to criticize Donald Trump, that being one of them, that his foreign policy is based on oil capture. But of course, they don't criticize him for that because they share that foreign policy. Right, right. So they have to make up these ridiculous charges now saying that uh, – he did nor, normal real estate business practices are somehow criminal, which is now putting a chill into the business culture in New York City, because now everybody and, they, and the, to, to the point where the governor of New York has to come out and say, hey, no, 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 no. We're just doing this for Donald Trump because he has bad behavior. Uh, but nobody else has to worry about this. Yeah, you don't have to worry about this as long as the establishment likes you. Right. And if, establishment doesn't like you, they're going to do to you what they just did to Donald Trump. And everyone sees that now, uh, which is a big problem for New York City. Uh, so uh, so that's so getting back to, to Cornell West. And it was a heartbreak for me to see him uh, do that on my show. He won't stop uh, using the divisive language that comes from uh, the DEI language. Mm-hmm. Uh, that um, said that again, I have to try to remind him it doesn't come from the bottom up. It comes from the top down. This comes from Vanguard. Uh, this comes from BlackRock. This comes from these uh, uh, venture cat, the, these uh, places like that. And mm-hmm. why? Why do they why do they invest so much in DEI? And it's because uh, they're raping the planet. So they have to wrap themselves in what it seems like virtue. And right. that's what and they can do it. So so now, I mean, it used to be a joke. Uh, we used to show uh, a bomber and it would be called right. a Republican. And on the side and, the, and below it would be a gay pride flag on a bomber would say the Democrats foreign policy. Right. And well, now they're actually doing that. They're bragging about that. They have gay black women in the CIA. They're they're bragging that they have gay black women raping the planet now at BlackRock instead of just straight white men. That that's a that's supposed to be a victory uh, for minorities. It isn't right. Uh, it's a victory yeah. for 
minorities is not to have more minorities in corporate boards. A victory for minorities is to get a, a raise in the minimum wage, to get health care, to empty the prisons and uh, to have infrastructure and, and high paying uh, jobs. That's or, or stop that's, murdering them all over the world in, in the name of democracy. Right. right? <laughs> or, or <laughs> stop dropping bombs. That's exactly yeah. right. Or stop, or stop sanctioning their countries and overthrowing and cooing their government. So American corporations can steal their natural resources. Right. Uh, right. So, so that's what I tried to impress upon. So but Cornel West is stuck in 30 years ago. It's like he hasn't mm-hmm. read a book or learned a thing since 1995. And uh, he and so consequently, he's an obscure figure now in American politics. No one uh, no one quotes him. No one even listens to him and no one even cares what he has to say. And he's turned on every person who was his former supporter because like I said before, his ego is bigger than his IQ. And he now has turned on Revolutionary Blackout Network. Mm-hmm. He's uh, he's turned what used to be called the Fred Hamptons, the Fred Hampton Network. Uh, that He's also turned on uh, me. He's also turned on Jill Stein. He also turned on his former campaign manager, uh, Peter Dow. There isn't anybody who, so if you criticize Dr. Cornell West from the left. He loves being criticized from the right because it makes him look good, right? So that's why he'll constantly go on CNN and take all the insults that they have to throw at him. Cornell West could say he sounds crazy. Uh, I mean, uh, Anderson Cooper could tell him that he sounds crazy and he's nuts and he'll call him his brother and come back on his show because he's being attacked from the right. But as soon as you get critiqued from the left, uh, his thin skin shows, his egomania shows, the cracks in his personality show he's un, he's incurious he's unwilling to learn or listen or grow uh and that's why he's an obscure figure in politics now and he's turned into almost a nonstop bullshitter like yeah. almost everything he says now just it sounds like a, 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 he's just a fast talking bullshitter it seems clear based on, you know, just the, just what you're discussing there, that it's the smallest amount of pushback. It becomes clear that you're falling back to the same old two party paradigm kind of dynamics with those responses. Oh, you're a Trumper just because you said, I mean, nobody intelligent can make that assumptive argument in that kind of situation unless you're trying to use it as a, a tactic. That's my opinion. So I agree with you. But it all the point you made in regard to quickly to the. The Brazil point. I just think it's so fascinating to look at the way that these people, whoever, you know, whether we're talking foreign policy, just the the social engineers of our world, that they nothing is sacred, right? That's a great point about Lula in regard to, oh, well, he's not what we want. Put him in prison. Oh, now we need him again. Pull him out. Or how Guaido can be the sovereign president of Venezuela until suddenly we don't like him anymore because we need Maduro for oil. So we'll push him to the side. And it's just, it's so embarrassing. And my point to saying that, it's exactly what you're seeing with the political sphere too. It's they will lean into whoever is valuable to their ultimate ultimate agenda, which I don't think has anything to do with what's in what's in the interest of Americans. Which is Nikki Haley right now. Oh, absolutely. I I mean, my opinion would be all of them, quite frankly. But let, let's stay quickly on the independent side of it because you, so we're talking Cornell West right there. I agree with everything you laid out right there. So the other independent in this, which is interesting because both of them, as always, will be framed as taking votes from one side or the other. That's kind of how they perceive the political game here is rfk jr but i kind of see him taking from both sides in an interesting way because i i I, will i'll let you speak to it so where do you see rfk jr playing in all this because a lot has changed since it first started especially with the israel conversation i see rfk jr taking from both sides exactly what you said uh but the democrats calculation is that he will take more from trump Mm -hmm. um 
So that's their calculation. And that's the only calculation. I mean, that's the that's why they basically kicked him out of their primary, which is what they did. Mm. And, um, you know, I told RFK um, the first time he was on my show, which nobody apparently saw that interview. They only saw the second interview I did with him. So all the things I really wanted to ask him, I asked him in our first interview. And I told him that it was a fool's errand for him to run as a Democrat and that he wasn't a serious He wasn't a serious candidate as long as he was running inside the Democratic Party because they'll never let him get the nomination. And that's a fact. And uh, they they've admitted so they admitted so in court. So um, real real quickly, were you arguing he should run as Republican or were you arguing independent at that time? Independent. Good. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking, too. He I think he would have had an overwhelming like I think it would have been clear he was the front runner if he would have done that, because that taps into the kind of sleeping giant of people that never partake in the election, which is the largest voting block. Correct. That's what people don't realize. Right. That's the largest voting block is the people who don't vote. The second largest voting block is independence. Right. The third and fourth very close together are Republicans and Democrats. Democracy. So, <laughs> yeah, democracy. So the Democrats and the Republicans split 50 percent of the voting elector of people who actually vote. Uh, the other 50 percent call themselves independents and they don't have anybody else left to vote for. So so, um, yeah, so I, RFK, I was very excited about his candidacy because um, it was obvious he has the guts to speak his mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, you know, there was nothing in it for him to tell the truth about vaccines and covid. And he did it anyway, which is exactly what, you know, C- Cornell West would not do. Right. He would not tell the truth about code, which is another thing I brought up on my show. And I, I said, you know, you, the time to come for stand up for to stand up for workers and, you know, put your money where your mouth is. It was during covid and you didn't. Right. Uh, you know, 41% of black owned businesses wiped out because of the lockdowns. And That's I said, crazy number. I, 41%. And crazy. yeah, I said, you said nothing. 70,000 healthcare workers in one state alone were fired because they wouldn't take an experimental medical treatment without long-term studies. And you said nothing. I said, do they all have to be trans for you to give a shit about them? <laughs> That's crazy. And I meant that. when I, I, said I agree. That. I just think it's such a perfect overlap. Go ahead. Please continue. <laughs> and, and so, But there's a price to pay uh, for standing up during COVID and telling the truth. There's a big price to pay to stand up for workers during COVID uh, and students and everyone else. And Cornell West and all the rest of the people except RFK Jr. were not they were it was clear they were not going to pay that price. They were not willing to pay it. RFK Jr. was. And so I was one of the few people who took all the slings and arrows, just like I took it when I told the truth about Bernie, when I told the truth about Syria, when I told the truth about uh, Ukraine and COVID and Russiagate. Um, that, uh, and then I was always vindicated on all those things. And Seth Rich, uh, now the FBI doesn't want to release his uh, laptops for 66 years. So, um, and, and of course, the Washington Post will never, Dave Weigel, who's a scumbag, and uh, a, a hand appointed from a billionaire, Jeff Bezos, to cover progressive politics at the Washington Post. Dave Weigel used to do pro-war rallies when he was in college, pro-Iraq war rally. Of course, that's the guy Jeff Bezos taps to cover progressive politics. And then he writes a smear piece on me in the Washington Post about Seth Rich and calling me a conspiracy theorist. But he'll never write an article saying, hey, turns out Jimmy Dore was right about that, Seth Rich, and the FBI is complicit and, they, and they're covering something up. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So anyway, um, so there was a price to pay for people to stand up and tell the truth about COVID. You know who did? Dr. Richard Wolf. Uh, he paid the price. He stood up and he said he was against mandates and he was and his rationale was was inconsistent with his political philosophy. He said, why would you want to give more power to the capitalist over your life? Now you're giving the power to the capitalist who employs you. You're never supposed to give more power to your employee. And now they can control what you put in and out of your body and your medical treatments to your employer. He said, that's not uh, it's crazy. And he was right. So uh, who didn't stand up for it? Everybody else, including in Cornell West. So uh, that's why RFK Jr. was uh, an attractive candidate to me. And then, of course, he goes and blows it all. And with his he was also telling the truth about Ukraine. Uh, And then he blows it all with his uh, his Middle East policy, you put it that way. And his his knee jerk, uh, unthinking reflex defense of whatever Israel's doing as if he had been brainwashed, because that's what it seems like. And everything else he says in his life is based on studies, evidence, facts. Exactly. And when it comes to, and I was told by someone very close to him that his policy on Israel is not based on politics. It's based on emotion. And so. To, well, why to do me, you think that is? Because again, that's a great point to make right there. It, it's, it's, a diametric opposite. Everything else he does is based off information, provable studies, and yet this is different. I mean, we're all susceptible to our emotions and our and our upbringing and what we think about the world. But do you think that's why it is? I mean, I mean, it's just your opinion. But I mean, I as I said when he first came out, just like you're saying now, I was very. I mean, I'm skeptical of all politics. I, I question every politician, as I believe you do too. But when I, so I was hopeful at the very least. Okay, he's doing a lot of things right. He's calling these things out. When he, when he came out in regard to Israel and said unconditional support, I just said simply morally indefensible. And I would say that about anybody, and I do, about all of them saying that. So it didn't make sense to me. So do you have any thoughts on why that, that direction that he took at, his, at the most important time for his presidential run? I do, but um, I think it would be inappropriate but um, to say, but my – you know, all I can say is it it resembles some sort of brainwashing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what happened or what. Um, uh, I know the Mossad tapped into my phone and my computer after I, g- I gave a speech at the UN. Really? Uh, very powerful. Uh, yes. Are you, would you so, want to elaborate on that? Because that's interesting. Sure. I was on a plane coming back from, uh, I forget where, maybe I was coming back from Europe and, um, uh, I looked at my phone and it said, uh, MacBook the now has control of your iCloud account. And I was like, mm-hmm. what? And so when I got off the plane, I called my IT specialist, who's a former military intelligence guy, now works for nation states uh, to try to hack into the, to their computer systems to find their vulnerabilities. That's his specialty. And when I got off the phone, I told him what had happened. He said, oh, my God, Jimmy, even I couldn't do that. And I said, really? And I said, maybe I shouldn't have given that speech at the U.N. Security Council. And he laughed. And I said, no, I really just gave a speech at the U.N. Security Council. He said, oh, my God, that's what this is. Mm -hmm. He said that this is definitely a nation state. And then he found out that because he said it's too expensive to do what they did. uh, And that the uh, you remember, remember, uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was the San Bernardino shooting a couple of years ago in California. Mm-hmm. And the guy who did it, that he had an iPhone and the FBI wanted Apple right. to let him in and Apple wouldn't. Right. And that was so, a big story for a while. It went back and forth, right? Where they were debating on 
Yeah. But guess my, my who, familiar with that. Guess who got them in? Must the Mossad. So Very they cool. have a they have a program, and I think it's called Pegasus that could can do that, that can crack those you can get around the two-step authentication. And uh, so that's what uh, my, my my IT guy told me that's what they used was Pegasus. Wow. wow. So it was either the Mossad or was another nation state, who knows, working. But they all work together, right? The Western intelligence, the people for the Ukraine war, the same, same people who are uh, uh, funding and enabling the Gaza massacre and right. genocide. Uh, Whitney Webb, writer for T-Lav, it makes that clear in her books and other work, right? It's the tri-national, you know, national security state where there's overlaps and how it's being applied. It's like the technocratic direction. Right, correct. So, um, so I, 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 um, it's a real heartbreak and I really want to, because I think RFK Jr. has, you know, a lot of courage, uh, obviously. Uh, he 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 has let his reputation be dragged through the mud now for over a decade to tell the truth about vaccines, and it turns out he's telling the truth about vaccines. Right? Uh, it turns right. out he is. It turns out that they do use aluminum as an adjuvant, uh, if I'm using that word correctly. Uh, it it does turn out that they don't have the studies that you think that they have to show the safety. Right. And it, it, it uh, he does have proof that they knew that the uh, vaccines were causing a lot of trouble. And so they, they held a, they held a, a meeting and they didn't do it in a government building who did it. Like the heads of the FDA, the CDC, people from big pharma, all those people got together and they did it at, at a Baptist church somewhere. And I forget the name of it, but he told me it. And, uh, and he said, the reason why they did it there was because then you couldn't do a freedom of information request to get what they were saying, but he got a recording of it. So he knows that they know. And so anyway, um, so that's why, I mean, I was really, it's, he's very attractive to a lot of people, RFK Jr. And you can understand why he, he's against the corporate takeover of our government, uh, which everybody else is for it. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's, and just that alone is is attractive, right? Yeah. And he's got a history of fighting corporations and uh, being a truth teller. And uh, so that's why his his so unfortunate that his Middle East policy would lead to World War III. So I yeah. told him when he was on my show that, you know, this wrecks your idea that you're the peace candidate. I go, how does that bother? I go, does that bother you that you no longer can be considered a peace candidate? And of course, he, he did some... He, I don't know. I can't remember what he said, um, but I said that to him. And um, uh, I imagine I, his response was not like, so you feel like it was not a real response. Like, what did you, what was your sense, your feeling of the response, even though you can't remember it exactly? It was, no, it was just, he was just more defense, defending his Middle East policy. So it was right. just disappointing. It was yeah. just, and so, you know, they say great men have great flaws, but this one is fatal. And I don't think he can become a president with this flaw until, and so, my idea was, you know, hey, you can still – my idea now is – like, I, it, bo it bothered me so much. And so I finally came up uh, – you know, I was talking with my friend Rob Schneider, the comedian, and and he's a big RFK Jr. supporter for the reasons I just laid out. Mm -hmm. uh, and, he, and he said, well, Jimmy, what do you want him to do about Israel-Gaza? And then it just hit me. And I said, well, how about he comes up with a peace plan? 
That, that's all you have to do. Nobody else has one. Joe Biden's plan is to let Israel do what they want. Donald Trump's plan is to keep bombing and killing what he calls terrorists. Mm-hmm. So uh, why not just come up with a peace plan? And then he would be the only one with one. Mm-hmm. And then let's enforce that peace plan. They would, uh, it would definitely win a lot of support. The, the yeah. only problem, I would argue, is that, you know, even Biden and, and Blinken are calling for a two-state solution but Israel has adamantly expressed right up until today that that will not happen. There's no situation where that will be allowed. And we don't have to get into that today since that will pull us into a, a whole big conversation. But that's the that's the hard part about it. But I would agree. I would agree that if he if he came out with a, a logical plan that was rested in, you know, going back to the 1967 state line, the, the you know, resolution conversation, I, I would support that. Right. I mean, I, I think you're right, whether you it's know, this I, or not. <laughs> You know what I say is, why don't those people in Gaza go back to Palestine? The the people, oh yeah, right, exactly. Well, they're there already, so it works out, right? <laughs> oh, son of a bitch, they are in Palestine, huh? <laughs> but everybody wants them to go somewhere else. The people, the Zionists, want them to go. Why don't they go to Egypt? Why don't they go to Jordan? Why? First of all, they are going in other those other places, right? Right. Uh, or uh, refugee second, camps there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Second of all. uh, why that's like saying, hey, why don't why don't the Americans go to Canada because China wants to take over? Exactly. Yeah. I said the same thing about Mexico the other day that you just argue we're going to take this, but you guys all have to go somewhere else. And the point is that there's a lot of countries like Egypt, whether or not they truly care about the Palestinians, and I think there's a mixed bag there that they that, that, that expo- supporting the displacement is simply supporting the illegal actions of Israel. You know. You know, and we can actually talk about this for the rest. I, I just know we only have an hour today and I wanted to get to the other political sure. stuff, but I'd love to pick your brain about the Israel topic. And, but it's such a large topic. You know, there's so well, much I, influences. You know what? There's honestly, there's better people to talk to about it. But I, I because um, I mean, I've covered the, what Israel as an occupier has done. I covered that. Which, they the way, is more than the vast majority of people. It's an occupation, right? That right there alone is more than most people are doing so. Yeah. And as an occupier, you have a greater moral responsibility than the people who are being occupied. Right. Right. So if you are the warden of a prison and there's a prison riot, you can't just slaughter all the prisoners. That's not how you you can't say, well, oh, they're 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 uh, they're violent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you as the occupier, you're the guys who runs the prison. Now you have to uh, you have to come in and enforce peace. Right. You can you don't come in and enforce uh, uh, a murder <laughs> and, and slaughter, so that's the same situation. That so I've always covered that. I've showed that uh, how the Israelis uh, don't uh, follow UN charters. Now they they bomb UN s- schools. I mean, right. sanctuary, uh, safe havens and sanctuaries. I've covered all that. I showed it to RFK Jr. too, and I told him I've covered that because he was making the, the argument that Israel doesn't try to bomb citizens or, you know, civilians. And I was just like, that's it. I've covered it. So you can't bullshit me about that. I've covered it. And so, but when October 7th, I mean, but I wasn't really, I didn't really know the history of Israel, Gaza uh, or, or Palestine. I didn't know the history. I really, I didn't know what the Nakba was. I'd never heard of it. I didn't Mm -hmm. know much about it until October 7th. And then I was on uh, PBD's podcast, like October 8th. Mm-hmm. or ninth, something like that. And they were talking about it. And I was just like, God damn it. I don't know anything. And I, and so 
what happened was October 7th and it wasn't October 7th, but it was Israel's response to October 7th that mm-hmm. made everybody get educated on what Zion. I didn't really understand what Zionism was and what it meant. I didn't yeah. understand how Israel got formed. I didn't understand what the Nakba was. I didn't understand what the, um, uh, uh, in, that Hamas was funded by Israel and how right. Hamas got started and how Hamas was created. I didn't understand why uh, Israel was against the P- PLO, but they they funded literally the Hamas. I didn't understand the, the blockade, right? Uh, I didn't understand any of that stuff. Uh, but now I do. And now a lot of people do. And now I understand that Zionism is very close to Nazism. Right. Well, good on you for, for you know, stating that and, and the, the research around it. I mean, because that's the problem right there is that there, this has been publicly available and provable for so long. And I, it's, it's I'm so happy to see that this is happening because like this is the point they keep making is that Israel's response is the reason that people are actually waking up to all of this. And that had they gone directly to the U.N. and petitioned them for a larger, like legitimate is military and in international response. I mean, the support would have been un, unparalleled, you know, and so their their belligerent action has caused people to wake up to this situation, which, thank God, the Palestinians have been fighting for it for 75 years. Just pay attention to what we're dealing with, you know, so I'm just I think it's very happy to see that this is actually seeding through. And what's interesting is we have it seems like the majority of peoples of popular of nations speaking out against this. And it's just the politicians pushing back over the U.N., over human rights groups, over it's pretty I've never seen it like this before. Um. This was a misstep by Benjamin Netanyahu and the Israelis. Maybe not by Benjamin Netanyahu personally, because he was already super unpopular in Israel. Mm-hmm. And so he did, you know, what all unpopular leaders do. They they uh, they let a war happen, which is he definitely let that attack happen on October 7th uh, because he knew he could use it as a pretext to go in and do exactly what they're doing now. And that the Isra- people of Israel would support him, which they do uh, to do this. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I found out that. There were thousands of people who showed up at Benjamin Netanyahu's house a month or so ago. Just happened again, too, just recently. To protest, right? And I was like, oh, good. Look, at there are good Israelis, right? And then I found out that they weren't protesting him carpet bombing Gaza and committing a genocide. They were protesting him rigging the Supreme Court in Israel, which to me is like showing up at Pol Pot's house to protest (laughs) for more bike lanes. Right. Well, I will say, though, I, I agree with you because that, that was the earlier one. But there's been multiple examples of them doing it since. And I would argue that, you know, there there's a it's a mixed bag because a lot of them are protesting for a ceasefire. And they're livid that he's not doing that because they're now very aware that the bombings they're doing are every, every moment could kill their families that are still there. And they know that. So there's a part of them that are wanting this to stop only insofar as they can remove their families and then they would be happy to see it all go away. But there is a, I, I've been trying to highlight that there's a large portion of Israelis, Israeli Jews, uh, uh, or just IDF members in general that are actively against what's happening to Gaza. So it's, I just think that's important to note, but you're right. The, the overwhelming population because of the Zionist influence on their mindset is, is pro, you know, I would argue even genocide to be quite honest, but I think it's important to note that there's a lot that push back on that, you know? I like how people say it's not genocide; it's an ethnic cleansing. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. first of all, that's it's not, that's like the difference between torture and and um, enhanced interrogation. They make it sound nice. Oh, ethnic cleansing! They're cleaning them. They, <laughs> yes. What are they giving them a shower? No, they're bombing them. Oh, yeah. oh that's different. So, yeah. So, uh, what, when people tell me, "Oh, Jimmy, you're wrong about I like you, Jimmy, but you're wrong about Israel Gaza." And I say, well, you have to ask yourself three questions. You know, 
why does every human rights organization in the world call Israel an apartheid state? Right. Uh, why does Israel uh, reject a one-state solution? And what, is, and what is the Nakba? And so if you can answer those, it takes courage to ask those questions, and then it takes even more courage to answer them honestly. And yeah. if you can answer those honestly, you will come to a different conclusion than to support Zionism and Israel. And, uh, you know, the reason why they don't never want a one-state solution is because uh, they it would no longer be an ethnic Jewish state. It would no longer be an ethno state, which we're supposed to be against. Right. Um, and, uh, because, uh, they, and they, and so that's why it's an apartheid state because they can't give the Palestinians equal rights because if they did, then they would overwhelm, there would be more of them than Jews. And so then they would have parity and it wouldn't be an ethno state anymore. And so that's why they're against the one state solution. And now they're against the two state solution because they don't want a solution. They want to ethnically cleanse Gaza. There's half a trillion dollars in gas and oil underneath that. And they've all, and, and they're doing the same thing in the West bank. Right. And so they want that territory. They, they, that's it. And they, they use this too. So that's what I came to understand because of this. So I think it's been a big backfire for Israel. And, and and before uh, Israel did this, I, I I could have turned the other way at a candidate uh, because of their position on Palestine and Israel. It wasn't on my top five things of lists of concerns, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and so I could have supported someone like uh, RFK Jr. easily. But now, since what Israel's doing since October seventh, it has gone to my top five list of concerns, Great and. Deal. And you can't, I can't bring myself to give support to someone. I can work with someone who's a Zionist on other things, but I have to oppose their Zionism 100%. Zionism, you know, people say, well, uh, Israel has a right to defend itself. Did you know that the law defines self-defense differently than the bloody slaughter of the children of your enemies? Did you know that the law defines it differently than that? So, um that so uh, yeah so I'm against that and I'm against Zionism and you know uh, I, this idea that Israel has a right to exist f- from why from where I, I don't I don't I don't get the, who nobody has a right to exist did we have does the United States have a right to slaughter the Indians the Amer- the American natives so we can have a right to I mean nobody has a right to exist okay that's what I think anyway yeah no well I mean you're right and the point would simply be that you know th- there's a legal understanding of the history that anybody honest can uh, outline but I would simply argue that today because of just like with any situation, you know, there's been Jewish families and, and just Israeli families that have been born and generationally grew up in the area that have that want nothing to do with this, don't really care that much, right? The point being that we have to find a solution that factors those things in, and that's why the two-state solution was argued. And, and you know, it, if honestly engaged with, that would have been an ultimate solution. But Israel has been proven to have repeatedly made sure, as you pointed out, in one way, arming Hamas for the stated purpose of making sure what they were publicly saying they wanted never actually happened, but also right. seeding the agreements like the Oslo Accords with poison pills to the point where they knew they would d- dismiss it. You know, so it's like a, it's a manufactured setup. I'm just so happy to see that people are finally asking these questions and seeing through it. Uh, one last thing I'll include, and then I want to get back to a couple candidate questions, is at, to your point, you know, this is one point that I think no, people, Haretz wrote this, I believe this was uh, 2000, uh, 2019, and it's just so interesting that see, you can have this on the record to where there was the, the nation state law that was passed and, and people debated what it really meant. And there was a, a, a 
TV star in Israel who spoke up and said, listen, guys, Arabs are equal citizens in this country, which is what we hear right now from a lot of the representatives in Israel. And Netanyahu publicly spoke out and said, no, you're wrong. Israel's the nation state of the Jews alone, like really specifically. And I just think it's so interesting that just like you said, we're not supposed to be okay with that. Any other, if Iran said that today, they would call that racism and an ethno state. The point being is there's an obvious blind spot to that. And so I'm just glad that people are finally asking these questions. So any more, any final comments on that? And then I'll go to uh, some other candidates we can discuss. So a Jewish think tank did a study about a month ago or so, and um, maybe even longer. And they, uh, they analyzed somehow, I don't know how you do this, but they analyzed all the protests happening in the world over Israel, Gaza, and who, which side the protesters were on. And the 95% of all of protests in the world were supporting the Palestinians. Wow. That's good to hear. I'd love you that's, to send me that link. I'm sure they call it anti-Semitism, right? Is that the point? No, no. The point is that the, the people of the world have woken up to what's actually happening in Israel. Yes. Yes. That's very, I mean, that's actually really, really nice to hear. I would just argue like there was an, an issue with the, I think it was the ADL that came out and argued that we saw this massive spike in anti-Semitism and it turned out all they did was just you know, write down every Palestinian protest and add that to the list of all anti-Semitic. You know, it's it's just it's yeah. the same thing that happened on January 6th. We investigate the grandma with a phone that became a domestic terrorism investigation. And all of a sudden, domestic terrorism is spiking in the country. It's how they lie to us. Right. They want they want you to be afraid of your neighbor. And people are, I you know, um, they they want you to think your neighbor is the Nazi and the fascist instead of the establishment um, and and that's exactly what January 6th was about. You're correct. And I'm. Uh, that was another thing that bummed me out about Cornell West. And I asked him, why do you call Donald Trump a fascist? He likes to say neo-fascist because I think it's, he thinks it sounds smarter. And he's, he's a neo-fascist, which nobody knows what that means except him when he says it. And um, and then he says, and I said, but you don't call Joe Biden a fascist. More The black and brown people locked up at much higher rates than their population in the United States is because of Joe Biden, not Donald Trump. Donald Trump actually did the, the first the step back that which which uh, let black and brown people out of prison. And uh, which is why 22 percent of black voters now support Donald Trump. I, why, why do you call Trump a fascist, but you won't call uh, Joe Biden? He said because Donald Trump tried to overthrow the peaceful transfer of power in January 6th, which is just a joke. It's it just, is. you know, it's just like I know Cornell West knows better than that. And so he just doesn't have the stones to tell the truth because there's a price to pay. Yeah. There's a big price for, to pay for him to tell in his liberal circles and, and uh, to tell the truth about what happened on January 6th, that it was a, it was a setup by the FBI to criminalize a political a movement so that they could they can criminalize a political movement so they wouldn't have to deal with it at the ballot box because they can't beat them at the ballot box. That's what I this agree. is. I agree. R- really, one more question on RFK, and then I want to talk, ask you about Trump. Do you think he has a legitimate chance of winning? I think if he got his mind right, I mean, I'm I travel all over this country uh, on a weekly basis, and I was in Milwaukee, and I who. Well, I was I was in a lot of places and people who work for RFK Jr., the people who are heads of his organization in their cities asked me, they go, hey, what do you think uh, RFK needs to do to win? And I said he needs to get his he needs to come up with a peace plan for uh, Mm -hmm. Israel Gaza. That's not uh, partisan. 
that's not sided towards Israel. And he has to push it. And they go, I agree. And they always do this like this. They always do it like this. I agree. Like that. We all know. Yeah. So everybody knows what the problem is. And he can't be president unless he does that. But if he does that, he could be president. Just shows you this elitist control over what we're all supposed to think when, you know, clearly the majority is on the side of, you know, not them. But so let's talk about Donald Trump then, because with obviously one of the most prominent aspects of this conversation, you know, the characters and all of this, what do you think of Donald Trump? You know, you, you, you have done a lot of work and and I argue, I agree pushing back on, on the left and you get criticism in regard to not so much on the right. I don't necessarily agree with that. because I think it's important to highlight the different dynamic. I call it the teeter totter of kind of how this goes over the, you know, so many election seasons, all of a sudden the who's crazy will flip flop. But who, who, what do you think about Donald Trump ultimately his chances to win? What do you think about his policies? Do you think that he's a legitimate candidate? Well, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump's. I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I won't vote for him. I criticize him uh, when he deserves it, which is not when the Democrats or this or the media criticizes him. Right. right. They criticize right. him when they make up things because <laughs> they agree on all the important things. Right. Except war. And so if they just put into this latest uh, a funding bill for Ukraine, uh, they put a, a bipartisan, uh, which means when something bipartisan is happening, it just means that there's criminals on both sides that have come together and they made it illegal for Donald Trump if he, to uh, stop the funding of Ukraine war if he becomes president. And so, but but let's remember that that's what he was really impeached for. He was impeached because he put a pause on the funding to Ukraine. And so the the only reason to really vote for Donald Trump now turns out to be an impeachable offense. (laughs) Uh, And so that's the way they've set it up. They've also put a poison pill in there to tie his hands and say he can't pull us out of NATO. There's no point to NATO. NATO's The whole point to NATO was to counter a balance against the Soviet Union. There's no Soviet Union. Right. Uh, Russia wanted to join NATO. So at that point, you're supposed to open your arms and greet them and bring them in. Now there's no threat anymore. It's over. But that's not what NATO's about. NATO's about is spreading Western hegemony and about invading smaller countries, stealing their natural resources. And and get, and, and plus, it's just about spending money on weapons, right? There's that upward transfer of wealth from the treasuries of Western countries to the weapons manufacturers and the international security state. As Julian Assange pointed out, the Afghan war was not meant to be won. It was meant to be ongoing. Right. Just like all, just like the Ukraine war, just like all these wars, the more we, they have. So when Joe Biden was pulling us out of Afghanistan, you had uh, a lot of simps for the democratic party. uh, Like for instance, Kyle Kalinske, uh, and people at breaking points like Crystal Ball saying, oh, I'm a, I'm a Biden bro now. Look, he's getting us out of Afghanistan. And I was like, what uh, What a juvenile analysis of that situation. Right. I'm a C student, and I know that the, the real tell of what he, the, what's actually happening here is what he plans to do with the money that we've been spending in Afghanistan. Did he right. say we're going to now take that money and spend it at home, or we're going to take it and pay off the debt or give people health care? No, they they... they took that money and they put it towards another war because you that's why the establishment allowed Joe Biden to pull out of Afghanistan and they allowed him to pull out of Afghanistan in the way he did, meaning that he left all of our military equipment behind. Why did the establishment want him to do that? Because then he has to buy new military equipment from the same people who wanted him to go to war in Afghanistan in the first place. Let's not forget that. Go ahead. 
that, that that's what this game is about. It's a it's a money laundering or so our our foreign policy is just a money laundering organ uh, program to give money to weapons manufacturers and uh, in the international security state. That's all this is. And foreign and, bots and, and other dictators for sure. And we blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. Right. Uh, so uh, and and now Germany's paying two, three, and four times the rate for energy than they were before, and they go along with it because they're simps to the NATO. And you know we're the we have over eight hundred military bases, probably closer to a thousand. Right. We just built two mili- permanent military bases in Syria. Right. <laughs> as we call as we call Putin a thug for what he's doing in uh, Ukraine. We're doing we've been doing the exact same thing in Syria and worse right. uh, in Syria. And apparently that's OK. Uh, so, let's not we, forget that Afghanistan, we're still there. There are still uh, contractors. There are still presence there. We just don't talk about that. And real quick, back to NATO. The interesting part in, in Trump in general is that NATO itself, he's not. And I, I have the same argument from him about all of this. And I'll bring up your tweet from Ukraine in regard to Trump is that. He's not really saying we're pulling out of NATO. What he's saying is th- it's the money situation. And if they pull their part, Donald Trump will happily support NATO. And so I agree with your point. NATO is not something we should be involved in because the interests are not really what we claim they are. But Donald Trump's not really against NATO itself because of that reason. He's against the idea that they're benefiting from it and not paying their due. And the same point here is that, like, as you wrote, I remember Trump saying he would end the Ukraine war in 24 hours. What happened to that guy? Because here he is saying that he would be continually funding. And I, I think. This gets to the real crux of my issue with Trump is that I don't believe he is the character that he's playing. He has a counterbalance to what the other side is. And I think that's his fault. He's I, I don't believe he is actually fighting for the interest of the American people. And I know that bothers a lot of Trump supporters. I hope they're right. But it's things like this that show you that it's really just, you know, what do they want to hear today? What can I say? Like, I'm a Republican suddenly. Is that what they want? I believe in Christian. I'm a Christian. I don't think those things are even what he actually is based on his books and what he's written about. So to these two points about NATO and Ukraine, what do you think about that? Well, if you if you take him at face value, what he's really doing is saying that we need to give more money to weapons manufacturers because right. the, the NATO countries aren't putting aren't ponying up enough money because there's a clause that you have to spend, I think, something like two percent of your budget on weapons if you're in NATO or something. There's a number I, I don't I think that's the number. And uh, and they haven't been doing it. And so Trump's going to go in there as the enforcer and make sure they pay their protection money. And who do they pay it to? They pay it to not the United States Treasury, United. they pay it to the military industrial complex of bank mm-hmm. accounts. That's what. And so really, he's in there as the enforcer for the mafia, which is the MI, military industrial complex in Wall Street. Right. Uh, and so that's what that is. So he's really. Uh, but but. At the same time, he's a bit of a contradiction because he's the only president in my lifetime that didn't start a war. And I've tried to figure that one out. And someone told me, I think it was Russell from Due Dissonance, his theory is that um, some if you read um, uh, Woodward, uh, Woodward's book on Donald Trump, he talks about how Donald Trump did, had to make a phone. You know, when the when a soldier dies, the president has to make a phone call, I guess or meet with those people. I remember that. I remember Bush had to do that. And he said, Trump does not have the stomach for that. And, uh, and so he'll, he'll, that's why he ramped up the drone bombing. That's why he deal, he'll do bombings, but he doesn't want to do real war because he doesn't want to commit American troops because he can't handle Americans getting killed. And then he has to tell their parents that they got killed. That's as good a theory as any. 
Um, I would and, argue, though, I would argue, though, that he did. I mean, I could argue in a, multiple ways that I think he did, in fact, start new engagements and kept the rest of them going. But I would even argue that he effectively did actually start a new war, which was the war on the American people, the war of the COVID injection, the war of, you know, that and that's we, we forget. I mean, that right, right there, you could argue, was the beginning of World War Three. There's a lot of you know no, narratives around what COVID really was. So it's all opinion. But I, I would argue that there was, you know, was, whether you think he meant to, he initiated that, you know. Isn't it amazing the the psyop that the establishment pulled that there was no bigger pusher of the vaccine and then Donald Trump and somehow they got you to believe that if, if the people who hated the vaccine that that made you a trumper if you question the vaccine or if you question covid policies at all that made you a trumper when the guy who was implementing them was Donald Trump and exactly. so, and all the Democrats said that they weren't going to take the vaccine if it came out during Donald Trump's presidency. Kamala right. Harris said that. Joe Biden said that. Uh, so, here, I, I'll, let me play like two seconds of it. I got the clip right here. <laughs> I think it's going to be a very skeptical American public about taking the vaccine, and they should be. We can't trust the president uh, and take his word and take a vaccine that might cause harm to us if and when the vaccine comes and it's not likely to go through all the tests that needs to be and the trials that are needed to be done let's just say there's a vaccine that it it goes on you've seen it i just think that's so hilarious that biden you know and then as you on a dime suddenly it's all it's all good and it didn't change it's just there in control you know that's right it was and so you see that um they the establishment, the donor class hated Donald Trump so much, the donor class, which controls the Republican and the Democratic Party and the media mm -hmm. that and the FBI. You, we, that's what Russiagate was, was a collusion between the Clinton campaign and the FBI and the CIA. The FBI lied to the FISA court 17 times so they could get phone taps on Donald Trump's organization, which they did. And they mm -hmm. got two hop. Think about this. So when you get a phone tap on somebody, there's a two hop rule, mean that you, you can tap their phone plus anybody they talk to's phone. That's wow. That's unbelievable, right? So they got that, and they still couldn't find a crime to convict Donald Trump of. That's unbelievable, right? So, Do you think uh, that's honest, do you, or do you think the intention was never actually to charge him? It was more about the, the show of it all. No, it was definitely they wanted to the, – well, they couldn't find a crime that he committed that they also didn't commit. Okay, exactly. I was that 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 I agree with because <laughs> so, I think they're all cr criminal crimes. And so now they just so now they even got so now they're so nervous now that they threw that out the window. Which this latest uh, uh, conviction of his in New York, he's just doing normal real estate business, mm -hmm. capitalist real estate business that every real estate person does uh, in every city on earth, and they've now criminalized that. Right. So they've actually gone even further than they would during Russiagate. Uh, so uh, what was my point? My point was that uh, the, oh, that the. Uh, my point was that the, 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 the donor class, which owns everything, uh, they're willing to do anything to get rid of Donald Trump. And I believe that they were behind. They instigated the Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. uh, protests. Right. They wanted people to feel like there was your. Your country is on the brink of civil war. They still want you to feel that way. And how do they do that? They foment civil war. And that's what those protests were. And, you, you know, uh, those were 
uh, I firmly believe those were instigated by the FBI because as soon as Donald Trump got out of prison, you know, that the Democrats all funded a new police organization to the tune of $2 billion and nobody talks about it anymore. Nobody talks about police brutality. There's no black, black lives matter turned out to be a completely co-opted organization run by criminals uh, who use their money to buy houses and everything else. And they're nowhere to be found. I mean, at local organ, local Black Lives Matter organizations might be legit, but the national one was a complete uh, joke. And, uh, and 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 uh, so uh, so they did that. A lot of people believe that they released that virus on purpose to make it chaos for Donald Trump. Uh, they, I mean, and if they'll do Russiagate, Russiagate was a complete psyop. It was completely made up and, and people still think it's true. I mean, that's how powerful propaganda is. If you say it over and over and over, I mean, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the Dunham report pr- proved that it was a CIA an FBI and Clinton campaign psyop, uh, the, um, Mueller report, re- same exact thing. And every inve- I I re- revealed it in 2016 that Russia Gate was bullshit on my show when I right. brought on Bill Binney, uh, the the big the number one code breaker for the NSA for decades, and he showed on my show that forensically it wasn't what they were saying that Russia did not hack into the DNC server. This was done locally, and it was done by Seth Rich, and that's why they killed him. Right. Right. I mean, it, what's so frustrating about multiple points you made there is that, that just to take the election point or, or any number of them is that it's it's obvious or actually specifically the one about like the Black Lives Matter, you know, the the, the the riots and protests and so on, is that on a dime, it just kind of changes and nobody acknowledges that. How could that have made sense if, you know, and, and at the end of the day, I th- I don't know whether that means that people really are just that susceptible to suggestion or that they're misrepresenting what the average people think. I don't know what it was, but I think today, for whatever reason, we're seeing this shift where people are very, I think it's a combination of the COVID illusion and, and how what we just discussed in regard to Israel. People have been shaken free from this. You know, and, and to your point, these propagandists right now are, are relentless with their repeated stated lies on Twitter about basic things like occupation of Gaza. And they just, it's, it's like 14 times a day. And to your point, if you repeat it enough times, you will convince some people. It doesn't matter whether you can prove it or not, you know? So it's really alarming how that works. Now, I, I know we only have a few minutes left. So two last points I want to get into. One is just this last idea about the, the vaccine with Trump. I do think it's interesting that he has, to this day, Never really spoke. He, he, he last interview he had, he tripled down on this saying he still supports this. He still believes it saved lives. He still believes the vaccine is helping. He just does. I never force it on people, which even that I disagree with. But I wanted your thoughts on why you think that's the case. And I do agree that it is a hard thing for his, his supporters. It's dividing them to a large degree. Now, what, why do you think he's still doing that? What's your thoughts on that? I think he's doing that because he's a, you know, he's just a billionaire. He's how do you become a billionaire by helping people? He became a billionaire by crushing people and doing the bidding of, of capitalists. And that's what, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where he's loyal. His loyalties lie. And he does the bidding of big pharma. He does the bidding of big oil. He does the bidding of uh, wall street. And so I just think that's just how the gears work. And uh, he knows where, you know, I don't think he really has a personal belief about Israel. He just knows that that's where his donor money and he and he and he can't go against APEC if he wants to have political power. It's, I agree. So these are all pragmatic decisions. I don't think that he even had he doesn't have a real ideology, Donald Trump. Right. Which is why sometimes he thought he was Republican. Sometimes he thought he was a Democrat, which because he doesn't really have an his ideology is to is to his billionaire uh, ideology. And He's so an that's Definitely. Yeah. I mean, all politicians are. I mean, he, yeah. that doesn't make him any different than anybody, any other politician. So that's exactly. it. I mean, 
It makes sense if you look at it through that lens. And um, you're right. You're right. It's simple. If you, if you don't look at it through this kind of savior complex or you right. know, like it, it's obvious that he's just just like everybody else. He's you know? just lucky that the uh, that the donor class hates him. Mm-hmm. And because if they didn't, there'd be no reason to like him. Yeah, good point. Because that's what drives the illusion or the perception that he is fighting right. against the system. Definitely. That the people I hate, hate him. So it's the enemy of my enemy is my yeah. friend. He, he gets a lot of that. And, you know, it's like the, the that Yuval Noah guy from the WEF even said that if Trump gets elected, it's the end of the new world order. And I'm like, boy, I wasn't going to vote for him. But now when you put it that way, so like it's so that is so Trump's greatest asset is his enemies are so odious. Interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I, I still I'm very skeptical that that in, in of itself is meant to sort of drive that support, you know, but I again, I, there's it's hard to say. And I think th- this brings me to my I mean, let's just put it. I'll, I'll put the last three things I was going to get into. And we can discuss, you know, which basically, first of all voters are seeing cheating everywhere. This is constantly coming out. People are acting like the sentiment being that both sides basically openly stating that they already recognize the other side is starting to cheat. So they're going to have to cheat to save democracy. So it's like this foregone conclusion that it's already cheating and like publicly. So, and it's really this interesting dynamic. And it even goes back to 2020 where they wrote this article, which I know you're familiar with. They openly stated, yeah, we, you know, we cheated to save democracy and you even have this being stated well, like this. Well, the election could be the end of democracy. Go ahead. Well, what they in that previous article you showed, what they admitted was that there was a conspiracy to stop the president, right. uh, president the, the election of Donald Trump, that there was a literal conspiracy of the, the media, uh, academia, uh, labor unions, um, po- 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 political parties, uh, of uh, all the all tentacles of the establishment came together to stop and thwart the presidency of Donald Trump. And that's what that, that's really what that they admitted and they did it in, in secret. And then that, then for some reason they were so proud of themselves that they did it, that they, they allowed um, that woman to write that article in time magazine explaining it as to me, that was the craziest thing that they allowed uh, her to write that article that I couldn't believe it. I'm like, wow, they're just going to, just going to tell you right and and we everyone knows before again before the 2020 election democrats used to scream elected democrats of all stripes used to scream about uh how vulnerable the voting system was to right. hackery and and we and and in uh, in georgia alone they know the they know that they're vulnerable you could go in and just j- jump it over with a ballpoint pen and they said they're not going to fix it until after the 2024 election. <laughs> so uh, Americans should not have any uh, faith in the integrity of their elections. That, so I don't. And um, uh, I think it's a it's it was it was a it was a completely legitimate position to always question the validity of the elections up until Donald right. Trump. And then yeah. they'd kick you off. Then they would literally kick you off YouTube if you question the legitimacy of the 2020 election. That's. Uh, so whenever they whenever they come down that hard, you know there's truth behind it. So when they came down uh, on on Seth Rich, you weren't even. I remember when I was on the Young Turks, I was on a panel with Ben Mankiewicz from Turner Classic Movies, and I was on uh, with Jenk Uger, the host of the Young Turks, and I was being slandered in the Washington Post for asking logical questions about Seth Rich's murder, and they they didn't have my back because 
they're scared, right? Mm-hmm. There's a price to pay for going against the establishment, which is why right. the young doesn't go against the establishment and why they get $20 million from the establishment and the DNC donors, right? So what I uh, actually was questioning the establishment and I asked Ben Mankiewicz and Jenk Uger and I said, hey, well, can you ever remember the last, I mean, we're on the number one news show in uh, online and in the world. Can you remember, I work for you, can you remember the last time a reporter wasn't allowed to ask a question about an unsolved murder investigation? Right. And and of course, no, they couldn't. They couldn't because it's never happened before. It's never happened since. So when so when they push back so hard on the uh, at questioning, questioning, that's when you know there's some fuckery happening. When you couldn't question covid policy, you couldn't question mass. You couldn't question where the virus came from. You were a white supremacist. You couldn't question natural immunity. You couldn't question herd immunity. You couldn't question transmission. You couldn't question contraction. You couldn't question the efficacy of the you couldn't question anything or else you were a white supremacist, Trump or conspiracy nut. Um, that's when you know there's fuckery happening. That's how I knew it in the Seth Rich. That's how I knew it in uh, COVID. That's how I know it. Uh, and if you question Ukraine, they called you a Putin puppet. And that's how I know that there's something happening in the 2020 election because you weren't allowed to ask. You weren't even allowed to talk about it on Google. What's Google again invented by the CIA in bed with the CIA and the uh, security state ever since. And um, so that's that's how I know there's something to it. And uh, they'll, they'll, you don't think they would over, they would, uh, you don't think that they would rig an election to get rid of Donald Trump? Look what, look at all the things they've done already to get rid of Donald Trump. Uh, I, I agree. That the same people who lied to you about building seven uh, and nine eleven, just which I just debunked on my show. I've been ta- I've been saying it since I started doing podcasts in two thousand eight that building se- seven was uh, was an inside job to take done by not the terrorist. You're if you're going to tell me that uh, a steel building uh, fell into its own footprint because a plane hit another building hundreds of yards away, I've got a vaccine I'd like to sell you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, you know, I would caution, though, like my worry is that just because it's being, you know, I think we can prove that there's lots of manipulation. But I do think today we're seeing that there are ways to to use that to get us to think that something is genuine. You know, and this is the way this we're like just simply because someone is censored, let's say, does not mean that they're telling the truth. You know, and it, it can, though. And I do agree. That's usually a good indication. But I'm very skeptical. Well, when everyone is censored. <laughs> you know what but, I mean? It wasn't still. It wasn't just it wasn't. You know, it wasn't just one person was being censored about questioning the 2020 election. Everybody was censored. It wasn't just me that was slandered for asking questions about and and discredited for asking questions about an unsolved murder investigation called Seth Rich. Everybody was right. I agree. So I agree. So, again, yeah, you're right. If it's just one person, that doesn't mean they're a truth teller. But if they're doing it to everyone, that means there's fuckery afoot. But, but still, I, I generally agree with you. But I would just argue that these the, the, the people we're discussing, the social engineers and whatever we're discussing, are very aware of our opinion of that. So it's not hard to recognize that they might use that to manipulate us in an event going forward. You know. So all I'm pointing out, and this will be the final question we can end on this, is that I worry – about someone like a Donald Trump that I do remember things like, for instance, WikiLeaks discussed the fact that they, there was the email that came out between the Clintons, as you noted, they, they wanted him to run, but said later that they want, they made sure he ended up on that final stage. And so, yeah, you could argue it's because they believe that would help them win. That certainly makes sense, but I'm also skeptical that there was more to it, you know? And so my final question would be in general, 
And it's a big question, so maybe we can talk again in the future, but it's about specifically the idea of voting in, in general. Do you believe that your vote truly translates to the outcome? Now, I mean, most people do. I don't. I know, and I know when I voted in California in the primary in 2016, it didn't matter. Okay. Well, and I, and I would argue too that that like an asterisk that I believe that voting on the lower levels, state, you know, county, I would argue that's the best way to go if you think it does. And that's probably where it will. But it, like, let's just take the presidential election. I do not believe, and I quite frankly think it's been proven that your vote, our vote does not actually translate to the outcome. That's not to say it doesn't have some level of influence, but I believe that's been proven today. Well, I mean, that, yeah, I, I you probably know more about that than me. Well, I think the reason I ask is because, and this is just more of a thought experiment, because I know that we all have our different opinions. And look, my, like my brother would push back and simply say that, look, if I think it has the smallest ability to influence the outcome, I'm going to do it. And I support that. I don't think anybody should not do it because of my argument, but I would argue that we shouldn't think that's the only thing to do. And I argue simply that if we do know that, or if we consider that it doesn't actually translate, then all of these conversations change, right? Because it wouldn't be that they tried to stop him and he ultimately won. It would be that that was what was supposed to happen. And I just think that's something to consider for people, you know? So I I would just like to piggyback off your point about, you know, yes, I vote. Uh, but I think that uh, that's not going to really change things. Um, mm. As somebody said, if the if you could change things by voting, they'd make it illegal. Right. right? <laughs> so uh, what what I would like to see for someone like RFK to do is to try to in, inspire or organize uh, uh, like a trucker protest, like that, what happened in Canada and what's happening in Europe with the farmers. And if you could bring the farmers and the truckers and, and workers together to shut down, shut shit down and actually scare the hell out of people, uh, in Washington, DC. And then, uh, that that's what's needed, right. To, to actually overthrow the, I think we need to, we need a revolution, Bernie Sanders used to start every speech in 2016 by saying, it sounds like you're ready for a revolution. Well, I don't think the revolution is going to come through voting. I think the revolution is going to come through protest and actually overthrowing uh, the bastards that are they're all they're all criminals. Uh, You know, when if you think that when a session of Congress, if you think they're in there doing the bidding of workers or the elderly or students or the sick or anybody Anybody else, you're a chump. They're a, session of, <laughs> agree. a session of Congress is there to how can we rig things in favor of the donor class? And that's all. And that's all that is. And that's why you still don't have health care. That's why uh, 50 percent of wage earners earn thirty thousand dollars or less. That's why 50 percent of Americans can't afford a four hundred dollar emergency. That's why most workers, 60 to 80 percent of workers live paycheck to paycheck. This is why. Right. Because we have a completely corrupted government. And people think when you say corruption, they think mean, oh, you mean Donald Trump got his kid a deal with the Saudis or Joe Biden got his kid a deal with the Chinese and or the Ukraines. That's regular corruption. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about complete corruption, meaning when there's a session of Congress, they're in there completely doing the bidding of the oligarchy, which we do. We don't live in a democracy. That's why that's another right. big joke. They say you have to vote to save democracy. You're de- that's adorable. Your democracy was stolen decades ago. You mm-hmm. live in an oligarchy, which was proven by a Princeton study that's over a decade old. If you vote, it doesn't have any effect on policy. So that's the problem with voting. It doesn't really have any effect on policy. So it, it only policy only reflects what the top 10% of wealthy people in America want. 
And that's the that's why we live in an oligarchy and we don't live in a democracy. And that's why it's a joke if you believe the media that's owned by the oligarchy telling you you have to vote to save democracy. We live in an oligarchy and right. we need to have workers come together and overthrow it. And I really believe that. Oh, I, I, you know, I, I just one comment and we can end on this. I, I agree. I, and I, I think what's so interesting about that first, it's protected by the Constitution. Right. You have the right to alter or abolish it. Should it not be meeting the need? You know, I think it's to as it's if it's not uh, I forget the exact phrasing, but not achieving the ends that Americans expect it. You have the right to alter or abolish it. That is literally what that means. But what's interesting is that this would be framed because it often in history takes the uh, the the it look it comes through as violence. Right. And so what they would frame that as is calling for violence. But I, w- I wouldn't argue that's what you're saying. And I would argue that it always has to mean that it just simply means that we need change and it can be a revolution of the mind. It can be an actual revolution. And I think what's important to realize is that that's not some taboo conversation. We need change. And I think that's importantly what we need to be discussing, whether it's wholesale or, you know, different things like that. And I frankly agree with you, man. So I, I, I praise your courage for saying that. I know people are going to use that against you. And I think that's important to stand by. Yeah. So I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. And I also, I also applaud your courage. You've had more courage than me in lots of different areas and I follow your lead on things. And, um, but, uh, you know, it used to worry me a lot, right. When people would attack me and, um, try to discredit me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've survived all that. And now the people who, uh, who watch my show and come to my live shows, they know that when I get an attack, like it's a bad faith attack. They can tell the difference between an honest criticism and a bad faith attack. And just like with Trump, uh, all these uh, bullshit prosecutions, they just make him more of a martyr to his followers, just like the uh, bad faith attacks on me. When people with MSNBC contracts do a video about me attacking me, that's a win for me. That's not a bad thing for me. So when people who take $20 million from DNC donors do a video about me and attack me for being anti-war, that's a win for me. So it's, uh, it's, I'm, it's, it's almost, it's almost like I'm immune to it now. So it's, uh, so, you know, when Newsweek does an article about me, uh, calling me the leader of the dirtback left. That's a win for me. I have that framed up in my house. That's a great thing for me. So if uh, if I'm the enemy of the establishment and the people who are mouthpieces for them, that helps me. And yes, I've been bad faith attacked about everything I've said. Um, and it hasn't seemed to stop me. And so uh, it kind of doesn't bother me as much as it, as it used to. It still bothers me when people I've known all my life, bad faith attack me. Yeah. But that has to, you know, it's just so I saw a Buddhist monk say that uh, the the brighter your light shines, the more shadows you cast. Interesting. I like that. So that really gave me a lot of peace and comfort when I mm-hmm. when I heard that, because that's just that's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, man. Well, that's such a great note to end on. And I'm so glad that you persevered because, you know, anybody in this field knows very well that people, especially as you're saying, when you're calling out the establishment that people are going to come and try to attack you in the most baseless, ridiculous and personal ways. I'm just so glad that you, you know, stayed, stayed, stayed the course. I will, I will include by the way, just this article that I wrote a while back that I think is important for people to consider. We don't talk enough about the, as I put the 
the the the true power of abstention and the reality that we've been lied to about what that really means. It doesn't mean not voting or not caring. It's actually a legitimate path to take. Right. The founding fathers conversation, you could abstain from a vote if you thought that the vote was illegitimate, if you thought any number of things. I just think that's important to think about. Like we technically should have a box that says abstention when you vote. That's no longer there. It's like jury nullification. They just remove these things from your understanding. I think that's important to consider, especially if you agree that there's some manipulation going on here. So I'll end with. Can I ask you, you sent me that article about marijuana. Yeah. The one I just put up on Substack. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I read. Um, I'm all, I'm only about uh, I'm about three quarters way through. Um, I agree with what you put in there. I just want. Did you know I quit smoking pot? I, I heard through the grapevine, yeah, that you put it down for a minute. I, you know, that's why I kind of sent it to you. I was curious if you would, because I I agree. Anything overused, everything in moderation, right? But it's interesting to see how that can benefit people. And it doesn't even have to be smoking. Like just actually like the CBD THC overlap is, is the, are we, our endocannabinoid system. It, it benefits us tremendously. So I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, we have an, uh, how, I don't know. I can't say that word, that endocannabinoid system. Right. We have that. Yeah. And I remember when, when I was a young man, I remember I used to listen to a guy named Dr. Dean Adele. Hmm. And Dr. Dean Adele used to talk about the craziness of the drug war. And which is why he, was uh, marginalized, but he he explained how uh, the chemical THC um, and the receptor in your brain fits like a a, a lock and a key, and that's right. not it's not the same for all chemicals. So that's obviously there's a reason why that is uh, biologically and evolutionary wise why that happens, right? So we can't ignore that. It fits like a lot. When I heard that, I was like, oh, that's really something. And um, so I I don't even though I stopped. Uh, I've walked away from marijuana. Uh, I don't have bad things to say about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it always served me well, and um, it 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 helped me in a lot many ways. And so, uh, it just was time for me to to uh, to let it go. Uh, and 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 I, I really don't even know myself why I did it. I don't. Mm-hmm. I think that I'm being. I think I'm being directed by, uh, by what, as Carl Jung would call my uh, unconscious transpersonal center, which is another word. This is another word for God. But uh, I think that there, it, this is happening for some bigger reason, and it also uh, forced me. I used to like to have two cocktails with dinner every night, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it forced me to. I can. I can't even do that anymore because I can't sleep. With uh, since I quit smoking pot, it, it I used to smoke pot to go to sleep. I would smoke a bowl, and go to sleep. If I woke up in the middle of the night and smoke another bowl, go right back to sleep. And uh, so I, it really interrupted my sleep pattern. And uh, so I was only sleeping two hours at a time, which mm-hmm. is not good. And then when I got it up to four hours at a time, which was much better, uh, if I had a cocktail, it would go back down to two hours. And mm-hmm. so I'm like son of a bitch i can't even drink anymore so i've been almost completely sober for since september uh, kind of um i mean it, it's not a big it's not a big lift for me not to uh to smoke pot it's it, i the something happened i don't know what happened again i think it's something carl young says your unconscious sets up the future long in advance mm-hmm. which is why i can be guessed at by clairvoyance and uh so i'm i'm i think there's a purpose to this i'm i'm curious to find out what it is 
Well, that's I'm, I'm actually that's that's outstanding, man. Like the 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 need to follow that path, you got to trust your you trust your instincts, you know. And it's some, something guides you in that direction. Follow it. I think that's fantastic. And I think that being, you know, everybody can benefit from being sober in like the realest sense from all the things we put in our body for for periods of time or or indefinitely. I'll, I'll leave with a a, cl- a state or I think it's a, a quote or is a quote from uh, I believe Ben Harper, and I think he said ex- trying to probably just paraphrasing that you know that he he believes in cannabis in general he's written many songs about it but he said you know if you're not where you're at or want to be at in your life maybe just put it down for a while you know and he's a big advocate for it and i think it just shows you it's about you know it's 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 all moderation all things in moderation you know and the concept being that you know you got to trust your gut and your instincts and so i i'm glad you brought that up man i think but my, the point overall with the article is you know that there is an innate connection to specifically cannabinoids which which come through other things other than smoking cannabis you know and it, and it actually is like profound in the concept of like breast milk and the idea that it actually comes through the breast milk of a woman whether or not they've ever consumed any cannabis product and it actually helps the baby suckling process and you know so there's something innate like internal that is designed with the human body and that's so fascinating to me and so i think it's something we just need to continue to look into and it's one of the things that we're boxed out from in every aspect of our life today and i just find that really interesting so yeah follow your instincts man and i and i praise you for that so uh, you know any, anything else you want to leave with, with leave us with upcoming shows that you want to shout out anything you want to talk about in the future um i'll be coming to well it looks like my shows in europe are going to sell out so um I don't need to plug that, but maybe Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, Palm Springs, Cortland, New York, uh, Oakton, uh, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, those would be the shows that I'd like to people. If you're if you're in those areas, come see a, a live Jimmy uh, stand up show. Outstanding. Uh, any 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 time coming back to uh, Asheville anytime soon? Um. Yeah, so I'd like to space it out at least twelve months. So I can't. Mm-hmm. I think I was there last summer for their festival, which was great. It was fun. I sold out two shows there. It was fantastic. Nice uh, at the Zanies. So yeah, I'll be back in Nashville. Um, hope maybe in the fall. Okay, outstanding. Uh, here, I'll, I'm just trying to grab this to bring it up for you. So I'll include these links so you guys can check out both his Twitter page as well as uh, the. Is this the right one? Yeah, this is the one you yeah, listed. Yeah. yeah, and so you guys can find the events and stuff. So thanks for joining again, Jimmy. I always enjoy our conversations, and I, th- I think that it, it, it you know helps people reach. You know, one thing I always like about any of my interviews is that, you know, we have our own opinions, and that somehow through this conversation, we kind of synthesize something new, you know, new thoughts and understandings of things. And I think that that's, tends to happen with our conversations. So thank you for joining. And uh, as go ahead. What are those two things on the side of you? Are those speakers? Oh no, they're chairs. It's just chair. We, I do oh. the the pirate stream podcast here as well, and we usually have more than two people alongside us. Oh, right okay. There. <laughs> I was just wondering what that was. Okay, that's all. But hey, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure. I'm a big fan of your work, and uh, I, I respect your opinion on things. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. And as always, everybody out there, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. For the last few years, I've had this sense that everything I learned as a kid about how America's government works is completely wrong. But I had no idea how bad things actually were until I saw this one graph. Researchers at Princeton University looked at more than 20 years worth of data to answer a pretty simple question. Does the government represent the people? Now, this is what they found. This axis here represents public support for any given idea. On the left, at 0%, are ideas that not a single American wants. On the right, at 100%, are ideas that everyone supports. 
This axis represents the likelihood of Congress passing a law that reflects any of these ideas, from a 0 to a 100% chance. On this graph, an ideal republic would look like this. If 50% of the public supports an idea, there's a 50% chance of it becoming law. If 80% of us support something, there's an 80% chance. You get the idea. Now, most Americans would probably agree that, with a few exceptions, we should be as close to this ideal as possible. Unfortunately, the way America actually works doesn't even come close. Take an idea that nobody supports, literally nobody, and it has about a 30% chance of becoming federal law. Now, take an incredibly popular idea, the most popular idea this country has ever seen, and there's also about a 30% chance of it becoming law. This means that the number of American voters for or against any idea has no impact on the likelihood that Congress will make it law. Put another way, and I'm just going to quote the Princeton study directly here, the preferences of the average American appear to have only a minuscule, near zero, statistically non-significant impact upon public policy. So if you've ever felt like your opinion doesn't matter and that the government doesn't really care what you think, well, you're right. But there's a catch. This flat line only accounts for the bottom 90% of income earners in America. Economic elites, business interests, people who can afford lobbyists, they get their own line. Look at how much closer their line is to the ideal. When they want something, the government is much more likely to do it. And when they don't, they have the power to completely block it from happening, no matter how much the rest of the country supports it. They get what they want, and guess who ends up paying for it? We pay for it with the most expensive healthcare in the world. We pay for it with a tax code that's a complete mess. We pay for it with internet that's slower and more expensive, with wasteful spending, a floundering education system, a catastrophic drug war, and one in five American children born into poverty. Almost every major issue we face as a nation can be traced back to this graph.